from investigating murders to human trafficking, the realities of criminal investigation, and how all that still applies today. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Are you looking for great products? It could be game changers for people, for their physical health, for their mental health, for their overall well-being? Go to letpops.com. That's letpops.com. I take these Juice Plus products. They make a world of difference for me. Better energy. I sleep better every night. Full night sleep every night. Zero leg cramps and more. Many people will tell you about the wonderful things that these products do for them. Plus, it can be a phenomenal business opportunity. You can help people improve their lives and, for a very small fee, get a complete back-end, complete website, zero inventory, no shipping, none of that stuff. Get full details on our website, letpops.com. That is letpops.com. Contact us from Michigan. We have retired police officer Jim Disser on the phone. Jim's retired from the city of Marysville Police Department and also Mount Clements Police Department, both in the suburbs of Detroit in Michigan. 31 years in law enforcement. Is that correct, Jim? That is correct, sir. That's a long time, brother. By the way, thank you for your service. (laughs) Very much appreciated. You're here to talk about some things that are still occurring today. Obviously, murders and homicides still occur. uh, And a lot of people are not aware of the extent of the problem with human trafficking. Those things you both have experience with in your career. Which agency do you start with and which one do you finish with? I started with the city of Mount Clemens uh, PD, and during that time, I had had a, a great opportunity to work in a real fast-paced, diverse urban environment, and I was assigned. Um, I was there for 15 years. Three of those years were undercover to a state police narcotics team, and then nine of those years were also on the county uh, SWAT team. And then uh, the second half of my career began at um, the city of Marysville PD, and I was very fortunate there as well to spend uh, five years assigned out to a major crimes uh, task force um, from 2016 until 2021. Is it fair to say during your career you've done it all, seen it all, been through it? No, I don't ever think that. I was taught by my dad, who was a cop for 33 years, to, to never think that you saw it all because that's when you're going to get hurt. Well, so, that's but I, true. I was very fortunate, though. I saw you know, a lot of, a lot, had some really great days and some really bad days, but um, lots of, lots of experiences, that's for sure. One of the things that we were taught early on in the academy, and I'm sure we can relate to this, is that complacency kills all the time. In police work, it is deadly, and I get why you say you don't want to have the I've seen it all mentality even today. Right. Yep. You're right. I couldn't agree more. And here's the thing, and, and we'll get into your story in a moment. 
there's so many great cops I worked with. And when I say cops, it's an ultimate compliment coming from me. So many great people I worked with were shot and killed. And for a long time, Jim, I thought it's because it would never happen to me because I was just good. Or I had the luck of the Irish or whatever it was on my side. And then I began to realize as I got older, I don't know why I survived and they didn't. Uh, that they were they were equally as good, in some cases better than I was. Man, I couldn't agree more. That's such a that's such a thought that occurs to you after you've been on the job for a while and you've been through some of those terrible experiences that you mentioned. You start to wonder why was it me, you know? And especially when, um, like you have known people who were killed in the line of duty, when when you know those were great cops, you know, he or she had a great reputation for being thorough, you know, and and concerned about their partners and the welfare of everyone around them, and yet it happened to them. Why? Yeah. And I don't know, and I don't try to fill that gap with something simple, but I think it comes back to maybe God's plan for us, you know, for lack of a better explanation. I, I don't know. I, or you could say it's just luck. Yeah, I don't I don't have the words for it anymore. And the close calls I had, Jim, I'm be, I'll be honest with you, I don't know why I was spared. The only thing I can take from that is that there's something for me still to do. Uh, and I'm not saying, I don't want to imply that there wasn't for them. There are families that were left sure. behind, lots of other things. I just don't have the answers. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, Jim, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time trying to think about it anymore. When it comes to my head, I try to get busy doing something else. Man, we're on the same frequency with that. I, I think that um, you, you can't spend too much time dwelling on it, even though it's a really valid and, and, and thoughtful question. Um, I also think, you know, that in this world we have free will. You know, we have free will to do good, and bad people have free will to do bad. And sometimes their actions, you know, maybe that's the answer. Maybe that, that person chose to do something real bad because that was their free will to do so, and it, and it um, severely impacted us as cops, you know. And the other thing is, you know, I'm not bothered by the cases we solved. It's the ones we couldn't solve. And and occasionally those memories come up in my head, even the solved ones, that at times where I don't want them to. And again, I, I just wind up getting busy doing something else because I can't find a way. Look, the mind's not a good battlefield for me. It's a bad neighborhood. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I've, I've got some cases in my career. I remember from when I was just a young cop, a rookie, and, and you know, working patrol and there were some a couple homicides of prostitutes in Mount Clemens that happened that you know, were never solved, and that frustrated me that I really wasn't able to affect that case at that stage in my career. You know, I couldn't, I could, I wasn't in the detective bureau, I wasn't assigned to to a task force, and I, I really couldn't reach out and touch those cases, and they were never solved. And I could tell you the names of the and names of the girls if you wanted to know them, but they're still with me. They're still in my head. Yeah, those are the ones I think we take to our grave. And I don't believe it's just you. I believe it's all of us. Everybody I've had on the law enforcement talk radio show that's retired police or former police, whatever, they say the same things. I, I Look, some of them said, I tell people when I'm retired, please do anything you can to solve this case. I, I still work on it. They still work on it. They try to find a way to solve it and resolve it, and they can't. Yeah, that's tough. It's tough, but it's a reality, you know? And the reality is, and we'll go into your story in a moment, the reality is quite often, not quite often, many times, we have a really good idea who did the crime. However, we can't get this thing called evidence uh, or probable cause to affect an arrest. And and by the way, and I'm not going to get in a long discussion about this, uh, people talk about indictments. We had an old saying in Baltimore, you can indict a ham sandwich of the Pope. Getting to court was a totally different matter. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, man. And, and it's just like, it's like the flip side of that is, you know, I served with some guys that were just 
definitely afraid of being sued, you know, and not that you want to be sued or anything, but I certainly have been in my career, but, but it's like you said, anybody with a, with a piece of paper and a crayon can sue anybody they want. You know, it doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that they're going to prove their allegations in any way, shape or form. So that's kind of the, the other side of the, of the indictment uh, theory also. That's it, true. I've been sued several times and they, they were never successful because I didn't do anything wrong. But uh, Look, the, the, yeah. those things don't get easier to deal with. And here's a, and I'm going to ask you a question. As a result of all the legal things I've been through with court, with uh, state's attorneys, with lawsuits, all that stuff, I sometimes am quite bristly with attorneys. Or do you find yourself in the same situation? For the most part, I've been able to maintain some some good relationships with um, defense attorneys who, you know, were, were they they were they do their job under the guise of protecting someone's right in, rights in court, and I get that. But what you're really trying to do is get them off. You know, you're trying to get them acquitted or uh, charges dismissed, and and that's part of the game. And but as long as people were professional, you know, I could I could I could deal with them. I only had a couple experiences where. Um, defensive attorneys tried to um, get me with a you know gotcha while I was on the stand. Mm-hmm. They tried to. Uh, I remember one case: a guy tried to accuse my partner and I of planting drugs and drug paraphernalia in the back seat of the car. The, the the same drugs and paraphernalia that we found at the county jail dropped there by his client. And you know, on the public record in court um, to accuse us of that, you know, as if we would risk our entire career and, and livelihood and risk possible indictments by placing a a crack pipe in the backseat of a car for your stupid client. You know, that, exactly. that, that offended me. And, and I let that guy know about it in the hallway afterwards. I remember well, that one. Good but for the you. Most part, my, my relationship has been professional with those guys. We're talking with Jim Diss, a retired police officer. When we return, we're talking about murders, homicides, investigated human trafficking investigations, his book, and more. This is the Law Enforcement Talk radio show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a product actually a line of products that have changed my life dramatically health products i know many of you like me are skeptical about claims made for these nutritional supplements however these juice plus products have made a world of difference for me the simplest cheapest least expensive product they have as a result of taking it a chewable berry flavored product I've had full night's sleep every night and zero leg cramps. I know, doesn't seem like a lot, but getting good night's sleep and having a stable mood helps me quite a bit. You can get more details about Juice Plus products at letpops.com. That's letpops.com. And for those of you looking for a great business opportunity, check out letpops.com. Return conversation with Jim Disser. He's a retired police officer from two departments, actually. One would be Mount Clemens Police Department and City of Marysville Police Department, both in Michigan, both in the suburbs, uh, very close to Detroit, Michigan. And you would think with names like Mount Clemens and Marysville, they sound like, be honest with you, Jim, they sound like uh, slices of heaven, places I want to be. But the reality is I know now, the older I get, that uh, violent crime is everywhere. And the names of cities and towns quite often are misleading. Is that the case with your experience? Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Mount Clemens is a tough little town that sits on the east side along Grass Avenue, um, just outside of Detroit, North 8 Mile Road. And um, 
it, it's it's kind of a little microcosm of Detroit, really. Give you know, if you, when you compare the downtown area and the socioeconomic levels of the neighborhoods, it, it kind of emulates Detroit in a, in a smaller way. And it was tough, but it was great. And I still love that town, man. I was yeah. so happy to work there and, and so happy for the relationships I had and the leadership I had. And it was a great place to grow up as a cop. In your police career, you wound up investigating some murders. And one in particular was a man who killed his father. Can you talk about that? Uh, that case occurred um, a few years ago when I was assigned to the um, Regional Major Crimes Unit up here. And I, I was in the shower one morning, and I got a call from a from a patrol officer who I knew, and her phone was you know programmed into my phone, so I recognized the name right away. And I said, uh, I picked up the phone, said, "Hey, Danny, how's it going?" Figuring she was calling me for some other reason. Immediately knew something was up because I heard the you know the I, I just heard it in her voice. And it turns out she was at the scene of a homicide. It was very fresh, um, and she was calling for uh, the major crimes unit to uh, to come out. And so uh, she gave me the lowdown on it, and uh, I hung up the phone, dried off with a towel, put my boots on, and headed out. And uh, we got there pretty quickly. And along the way, I called my boss um, from MCU and uh, um, gave him the details. He got on the text line and the and the radio and got everybody uh, spun up and out there within about 30 minutes or so. And what had happened was um, a man had called 911 and told the dispatcher that he killed his father. So naturally, they sent the police right away. Um, the patrol officer I spoke with, she showed up along with her partner and, and a couple others for backup, and uh, they they looked inside the front door and saw this man sitting on the couch, um, you know, covered to his elbows and, and blood and some other uh, tissue matter, and they ordered him out of gunpoint, gunpoint put him on the front uh, yard, and uh, handcuffed him without too much of an incident. And uh, when I got there, I, uh, I I saw the you know the crime scene being taped off. I I asked uh, the first person I saw where the suspect was, and he was in the back seat of a nearby patrol car. And I asked if he had been advised of his Miranda warning yet. Uh, fortunately, he had been had not been. And the reason I say that is that man, it looks cool you know on TV when you see cops like you know shoving up somebody up against a wall and cuffing them and saying you got the right to remain silent. That's very exciting, but. Um, if a if a bad guy's sitting in the backseat of the car at a crime scene, you know, there's a lot of activity, cops running around, there might be a police dog barking at him, who knows? And if they um advise him of his Miranda rights and uh ask him if he wants to talk, he might say, you know, you, where's my lawyer? And at that point, you know, the detectives are are because we can't ask him an hour later if he wants to change his mind. Right. If he, exactly. if he lawyers right. up, you know, the questions are over right then and there. So he had not been um questioned at that time and so i asked the patrol officer to take the suspect down to uh, the police station uh, nearby and and to the detective bureau specifically and in the meantime uh we uh we started uh with our assignments we got uh, um, teammates that canvassed the neighborhood um i took a look at the crime scene uh, very carefully i put some boots on booties over my shoes and went in careful not to disturb any uh the potential evidence and what I saw was a man sitting in a lazy boy chair in front of a television that was still turned to channel. And he had a hole in his forehead about the size of a softball um, with, through which I could look right into his, you know, his, the cavity behind it, you know, in his skull and all over the walls and the, the ceiling were, were, were blood and brain matter that looked like it had been, you know, splattered that way. It had been um, flung onto the walls and, and onto the ceiling and nearby I saw a golf club and clearly that was a murder weapon. It was a, if you're a golfer, you know, 
two-pronged golf uh, putter looks like. It's a, it's a sharp instrument on one end, and uh, this had been used to uh, strike this individual many times in the head and to kill him. And so um, I backed out slowly, and I called uh, the Michigan State Police Evidence Response Team because just we had good evidence text on our team too, but this was a crime scene that had a lot of blood and a lot of uh, brain matter and other tissue that was all over the place. It was going to need to be very meticulously gathered, cataloged, preserved, um, which they're all you know very good at, and they're also highly qualified at court testimony. So I just thought it was the best thing to do. Um, it took several hours for them to get there. So while my teammates, Canvas and Neighbor, did interviews, um, we waited for the evidence um, response team to arrive. Uh, one of my partners and I went down to the police station to do an interview. And when we got there, um, the patrolman still had him in the car. We got him out, walked him in. We uh, had another detective uh, who was waiting for us in an interview room with a tarp laid out on the floor. And we had our suspect go in there, disrobe, take all of his clothes off. All of those clothes were you know, covered in blood and, blood and guts and were preserved um, properly for, for DNA analysis and other things. And um, photographs were taken of him and everything was documented. When that was done, I took him down the hallway and I, I let him wash his, his hands and his arms and his face with some soap and hot water and just kind of get himself together. We got him a, um, a hospital gown to wear. And uh, or some scrubs, actually, not not a gown, but uh, we put him in an evidence room. I gave him a bottle of water, and I just let him chill there for 20 minutes or so while my partner and I discussed our strategy for interviewing him. Um, when we went back in there, and I, you know, I advised him of his rights, and uh, he, he agreed to speak with us. Man, he just spilled it for whatever reason. It was about the easiest interview we've ever did, and uh, he told us that um, the man there was his father. And that um, he had woken up that day and um, just felt distressed about all the, the things that were affecting his life, how he, um, his, his job was aggravating him, his bosses and the customers or everybody was making him upset. He had a lot of bills he didn't want to deal with anymore. So in an instant, he decided that he was going to kill himself. So he said, Dad, I'm going to go down, go down to the store and get some cigarettes. He drove down to a truck stop to get some cigarettes. Along the way, he looked at a an overpass and thought about jumping uh, jumping off of it. He couldn't couldn't bring himself to do that. And then uh, on the way back, he said, well, I'm going to look for an 18-wheeler and steer into it, kill myself. Didn't have the courage to do that. Got back to the house and uh, was using his um, father's uh, master bathroom. And when he came out of it, he saw his dad's golf clubs stacked up in the corner. And he told me that right at that moment, he decided that he was going to kill his dad. That way, he'd go to prison for the rest of his life, no parole, and not have to worry about bills and work and demotions and customers and aggravations. And he picked up that putter, walked out into the living room, came up to his dad from behind, and as he, as he approached on the right-hand side and came to, to be in front of him, he swung the club. And it's the first one struck him right in the forehead. It was probably fatal. Um, it was um, certainly rendered the man unconscious, and I say that just because he probably didn't suffer for more yeah. than a second. Thank you. Take a short break. We're um, talking with Jim Disser, his retired police officer, also author. We will talk more about this homicide case when we return, and then investigating human trafficking. This is Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Discover the exciting world of podcasts at hefepods.com. 
from captivating stories to life advice and much more. There's a podcast for every interest and passion. Be entertained by your favorite radio personalities in both English and Spanish. Don't waste any more time. Find a great English or Spanish language podcast to follow and discover a world of possibilities in your own language. Find the best podcasts at chefepods.com. What is the Haunting or Not podcast? It's a free podcast that takes a different approach to ghost stories, hauntings, and cases of demonic forces. Husband and wife podcast hosts mix comedy, facts, and a healthy dose of police evidence skepticism to help you decide. Are these hauntings or not? Helping you decide what's real and what is fake or an overhyped exaggeration. From world-famous cases to lesser-known reports, they talk about them all in the Haunting or Not podcast, available for free on most podcast platforms. Or do a Google search for Haunting or Not podcast. Return conversation with Jim Disser's retired police officer from Michigan, from the Detroit suburbs. I say Detroit. I just love saying it that way. I don't know if it's proper or not. He's retired from uh, Mount Clemens Police Department and also City of Marysville Police Department. Before winter break, Jim, we're talking about this murder case, and it, it, it sounds like what we call a slam dunk from the very beginning. Uh, you, everything is yeah. there, all the and most are not like that. The vast majority that I've been on were not like that at all, and yeah. it's still not easy to deal with. And when the guy was giving his explanation, the the, the suspect about why he killed his father, it can seem insignificant his motivation for doing that. But you and I both know that many lives have been lost over drugs, alcohol, he said, she said, other kinds of nonsense that don't make sense at all. That's true, man. That is absolutely true. And that's what uh, I was kind of coming to there is, is we're searching for the motivation in this case. And at that point, he had he had confessed to murder. But I knew there was more than one strike because of the crime scene that I described to you, John. And I asked him about that. And I said, you know, did you just strike him that one time knowing that he that wasn't true, but I, I gave him the opportunity to explain it. He says, oh, no, I hit him more times than that. I said, well, how many do you think you hit him? How many times do you think you struck him with that golf club? He says, oh, 12 to 14 times. So if you stop and think about that and the effect of, you know, a two-pronged golf club into somebody's skull, and then every time he reached back with it, you know, that's how it got flung across the ceiling in the walls. And uh, I said, okay. I, at some point, we got to the point where I was satisfied with the um, – with the depth and the breadth of his confession. But my partner that day, Eric Shoemaker, who's a fantastic um, investigator from the Michigan State Police and a, team, a former teammate of mine, um, he was not satisfied. And he, he was, we kept digging. And so we thought, man, there's got to be some, was, was this guy molested as a kid? You know, what, what, what's the motivation for something like this? And the, and the suspect said, oh, no. He says, uh, my dad was my best friend. Like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, like we were just at the Detroit Tigers game a couple weeks ago, and my dad wanted to leave in the seventh inning. And I said to him, Dad, you never left early when, uh, you know, when I was playing baseball. And he says, well, that's because you were playing, son. And and it just sent a chill down my spine. Yeah. How could you kill this man? That was your your best friend, your dad, who cared so much about you. So that was kind of a significant thing. And, and uh, eventually, um, you know, we, we did wrap that case up. He was uh, he was lodged in the county jail. He was... Um, charged with, uh, you know, in Michigan, it's called uh, homicide first degree murder, and it's um, punishable by life in prison without the possibility of parole. And believe it or not, he actually pled guilty to that. 
as you know, nobody pleads guilty no. to first degree murder because you're going to hope for a lesser included offense at trial and maybe you get out 30 years from now. But he didn't want that. And, you know, he got his wish at, at a tremendous cost. And the, the the reason I told you this particular story was about eh, a month later or so it just started to bother me a little bit. And it, it's, I started to dream about it, you know, and I started to think a little bit more about it. And over all those years, you know, I've been to many homicides and armed robberies and lots of other stuff. And I always managed to do my job in the moment because that's what I was taught to do. And then later put the whole thing in a mental drawer and close it. Mm-hmm. And, and this case kind of made me wonder and it made me a little fearful if all those drawers weren't going to fly open someday, you know, and uh, so I, we were up north, in northern Michigan, my wife and I, our in-laws, and I woke up one morning, and I was like, hey, I got to talk to somebody, because this is really bugging me, and I don't know why. It's never bugged me before. So um, I agreed to uh, go to a, find a good therapist and go talk to him or her, and I did. Um, only went one time, but I should probably go back, but uh, it was really helpful, and that's what I wanted to pass along to some other cops, is that it was really helpful because... After I kind of got the whole thing out, you know, the whole story and the, the therapist there, he asked me, you know, a bunch of questions to clarify some matters. And um, when he was doing that, I, I informed him that, that, that my dad had passed away about, uh, I guess, it'd be two years before that. And long story short, he, he came to the conclusion that um, he, he told me that what had happened and what I'd seen and what I'd learned from that suspect it kind of plucked a string inside of my head emotionally and that the string was vibrating like a musical instrument does. Mm-hmm. He goes, and it's most likely related to, to your dad passing away and, and the, and the things that happened to this, this suspect and his dad. And, and he, he told me, he gave me some exercises to do and he told me to relax and not worry. Cause it would stop. That string would stop vibrating eventually. And it did. Yeah. And, uh, I felt, you know, perfectly normal after that. And I was, I was very grateful for his, uh, his counsel and his advice. It was a, it was a good move to make uh, to go speak to that person. So. Well, the analogy about the the musical string, I think, is a good one. To be totally honest with you, it does. In my experience, those strings stop vibrating, but they're still there. And it's every now and then, if I don't pay attention to things I really need to pay attention to, someone just like you know, with acoustic guitar, and he just starts drumming it, and. Uh, all of a sudden, it's full volume, yeah. and it's, uh, it's it's annoying. And I'm the one who's irritable. I'm the one who's stressed out. Uh, so one of the things I do, Jim, and before we get into the human trafficking story, is look, I know psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health experts don't like the term control, but there's things I control I do not consume, I do not watch. I don't watch body cam videos. I don't watch dash cam videos. I don't watch any of stuff because I don't like how I'm affected. All those strings start to go at one time. Isn't that something, John? I'm the same way. I can't watch those. Like I see now more so than than ever. I mean, we had body cams and you know dash cams in our career, but now it's it's off the chain when it comes to that stuff. I have absolutely no desire to watch that stuff. I don't think I could articulate it as good as you just did, but I just know that I don't like it, and so I don't watch it. No, and you know who pays the price is my wife. She pays the price because I become. I don't want to say antisocial. I get very quiet, uh, but she's the one who's like, she loses uh, that period of time where I'm not available. And that's just not a, a price I'm willing to pay anymore. Yeah. Good for you, man. That's awesome. That's a very generous way to look at it too, for your wife's sake. So your, your, your musical chords are not be your, the, 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 the chords, the lines, whatever it might be are not being strummed right now, but that doesn't mean they're, they're gone fully. I'm sure you are aware of that. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, I think, honestly, that our brains, I wasn't in the military, so I can't, complain, can't, can't compare it to wartime, but our brains as cops are affected over the course of 20, 25, 30 years or more. You know, every time you, you're in the raid van and you're getting ready to go up to the, to the door in a bad neighborhood and crack it, you know, every time a flashbang goes off around you physically, you know, it, it affects your brain. I really believe yeah. that. And, um, it's, it's, it's tough for me to articulate it past that. I don't really understand it all, but I know for a fact that, you know, police careers are a, are a slow burn, man. They you know, are. The, the and they take, they take a toll, they it, take a toll on up. you. They take a toll on your spouses. They take a toll on our children as well. One of the things you said is like the adrenaline. I cannot, I cannot handle adrenaline dumps anymore uh, because it, I know from the outside, it doesn't look as extreme as it feels on the inside, but it takes me a very long time to get back to my center. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've noticed that too. Like if I, uh, you know, I lay down to sleep and usually I go to sleep, no problem at all. But if I have like a bad thought or something or some memory or, or I, you know, God forbid somebody knocks on the door or something at midnight, anything like that, you get an adrenaline dump, man, forget about it. It's going to take me a good half hour to an hour just to let that adrenaline burn off, you know, before I can even lay down again you know one of the things that really bothered me was uh, how people could treat people they so-called loved and the, the the amount of violence the amount of trauma that we observed was non-stop you had a case where you got involved that involved human trafficking we've got a break coming up very quickly was that a prostitution case it started as a prostitution case and uh we we tried very quickly after after investigating prostitution, we, we came to the realization of, of what human trafficking is and how prevalent it was. And so um, those cases that started as prostitution, we, we made a, a good effort to determine if a person was being trafficked. And if she was, then it, we focused solely on the trafficker and not her. We didn't charge her with any type of crime. Gotcha. We're going to talk about that in a moment. I want people to understand this. When we say prostitution. That's a term that, that I was always taught. Uh, and it's not a judgy term. If people prefer the term sex worker or whatever it is, I don't really care. And I don't get into the dispute. I don't get into that argument at all. When we return to our conversation with Jim Disser, we're going to talk about the human trafficking case that he was involved in. How all this led to him writing a book and more. This is Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. You can find us on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. And if you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. This is a Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Return to our conversation with Jim Disser. He's a retired police officer from two departments, actually, both in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. One would be Mount Clemens Police Department and City of Marysville Police Department. Now, part of your experience in policing, Jim, is, and you've got a, a vast experience, which we'll talk about because I'm sure you include a lot of it in your book, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But one of them was you got involved with a prostitution case, a sex worker case that wound up being human trafficking. What can you tell us about that? 
Well, I started my career, um, I really cut my teeth as a cop investigating prostitution and narcotics. And that was thanks to the field training officer I had, a guy named Lance Folson, um, who I loved like a brother. God rest his soul, he passed away. But he taught me what prostitution looks like at a street level and, and, and how to investigate, you know, narcotics on traffic stops and that kind of stuff. So it was really, he set me on a path. He set me on a two-track path for the next 30 years by doing that. And uh, during the time that I worked, I worked three years undercover um, narcotics, and we that was part and parcel to work in some prostitution stuff. So uh, later on, in about 2016, when I was assigned to uh, the Major Crimes Task Force, there was a, a rising problem with online prostitution that um, had never really been seen before in this area in Southeast Michigan. And, and I was assigned by our boss to um, to start, you know, a program of, of investigation of these of these uh, local online ads for prostitution. So I started out by just dialing them up, you know, and I would always try. I knew, of course, to get them to say um, what they're willing to do in terms of a sexual act and how much it's going to cost, because we had to be very careful not to entrap anybody. Right. We always were, um, and then and then we we quickly um, ramped up our investigative. Um, capabilities, our, our equipment, the stuff that we used. And, and so basically at the point of the story, I'm going to tell you, we were already online with um, software that recorded um, telephone calls and text messages and digital images. And it was all preserved as digital evidence for prosecution. And it was, we, we really um, made a leaps and bounds in a quick time. So in this particular case, I, I uh, answered an ad um, that was on um back page, which is now, of course, gone, but many pages took its place. And uh, it was very simple as a text message with some photographs. Um, she said what she was willing to do and how much it was going to cost, and we were good to go. So when we showed up, she was going to be arrestable. So as per our normal, we sent out my teammates um, to the scene. She was at a dingy dive motel on the side of the road, um, and uh, they set up surveillance before my arrival. I got there. She told me what room it was. She opened the door, and there she was. Now, we can arrest her at this point for prostitution. And um, as she invited me in, I came inside. She locked the door behind me. She, when she walked towards the bed, I just unlocked it, and my, my teammates came in, and we arrested her. No big deal. She she knew the drill. She'd been around for a while. And um, while we were in there, she uh, her phone was just on blast. It was getting constant calls from, you would presume, more customers. I asked her permission to look at it. She agreed. Um, I saw the text message between her and another uh, person where the price and act had been agreed to. So I answered that text as her. And this guy shows up five minutes later. We arrested him. Uh, that's another story. But um, when I got this uh, young lady down to the police station to do an interview, my first goal was to see if there was any evidence that she was in that position doing prostitution through the force, uh, fraud, or coercion of anyone else, which is definitely, it's basically the the definition of trafficking. Right. If you're there um, through the force, fraud, and coercion of someone else, that's a big clue. And I must have caught her on the right day because uh, she she told me the whole story about a gentleman, uh, not a gentleman, a, a piece of <laughs> dude that had been trafficking her for quite a while. And um, she told me the story about, uh, she, she had... Uh, done some jobs on the side by herself and earned enough money to buy herself a used automobile. He found out about it, had one of his um, homeboys call her and pose as a customer. When she showed up in the Beamer, trafficker jumps out from behind the house, rips her out of the car, physically, you know, harms her severely, takes the title of the car, forges her signature and signs it over to himself. And she never saw it again. 
So I think that had recently happened, and she was pretty upset about it. So she told me all about him. And so uh, he kind of, it was evidence she'd been trafficked. So we got her to a safe space. We got her counseling. She was charged with no crime of any sort. And our uh, the trafficker became our target. Uh, I called a friend of mine from the FBI who hooked me up with another detective from the FBI crime uh, uh, human trafficking task force in Detroit. And that agent called me a couple of days later and said, Hey, we're, we're working on the same guy and we're, we're, we have an advertisement with a phone number and it appears that it's a juvenile in the prostitution ad. And we think he placed it. We have the phone number. We, we've geolocated it to a certain area, but we can't, we don't know the exact house. Would your arrestee know the address? I called her from my car. She knew exactly the address was. I called them back. They answered. They, they called the number, set up a date with this person, sent an Uber to pick her up. Of course, it wasn't a real Uber. It was an FBI agent. And they rescued that girl. She was only 15, 15 or 17 years yeah. old. But it was a juvenile, so they got her out of there. And then they executed a search warrant on the house. They rescued four more trafficking victims. They were not juveniles, but they were still victims. One of them, in fact, had been injected in the neck by the suspect with heroin to make her an addict who he could then more easily control. So right there you have, you know, the force and then you have the coercion because he could withhold the dope from her if she was dope sick. So this is, this is his, his MO. This is how bad of a guy he is. So, uh, in the end, um, this guy was arrested. He's sentenced to federal prison where he's still at. And, um, tragically a couple months later, uh, my arrestee, who um, was very cooperative with us and, you know, who I got to know a little bit professionally and uh, wanted to help her. We all did. She had, she went to rehab and got clean and that was great. And about two months later, man, she got a hot shot of heroin yeah. that had fentanyl in it and it killed her. So she's gone. So well, I, I appreciate that, your efforts. You know, we can't control the outcome. You know that we do the best yeah. we can. I always say this and I've got better with this now than when I was on the job is I'm not God and I'm not Superman. I can just do the best I can. Uh, and the outcome in court or whatever, it's up to other people. All of your experience wound up leading you to writing a book and the book is called echoes and attorney street cop stories. Uh, did you write this for therapeutic reasons or did you think that people just needed to know the reality or was it a combination of both? Dan, you're the first person that asked me that question if I wrote it as a form of therapy, and I did. I, that was my hope, anyway. I had all these things rolling around in my head, and I decided to write this book with a little prodding from a, from a buddy of mine uh, who had also written a book uh, named John Borkovich, and I started to write it. And the first 10 chapters, each, each story in the, each, excuse me, each chapter in the book is a different story, similar to the ones that, that I've told you today. And it's roughly chronological, but, um, I started to write them, and in the first 10 chapters, I couldn't write them fast enough. And I realized, man, maybe this is going to help me get some of the stuff off my mind. The next 10 chapters, not too bad, kind of the same thing. I'm still having fun. The next five were a little bit of a labor, so I set it down and didn't do anything for about six months. And then I picked it back up, wrote them you know, one at a time, got to a certain point when I realized I had to stop. I got plenty more stories, lots and lots more. To, I could probably write a couple sequels, but I stopped, and uh, I realized that... It didn't really help me therapeutically. It didn't help me get it out of my head, but um, that was my initial thought, and that, that's a pretty insightful question, man. You're the first person to ask that. Well, the reason I bring that up is because I always thought, and I still might do it someday, just write a book about my stories, what I've been through. And I, I imagine yeah. there's to be an incredible therapeutic response to that. 
But there's a reason why my mind doesn't want to go there, and I think it's it's a protection thing. Um, and we could we could talk that point till the cows come home. Uh, yep. First of all, let's go into where can people find and buy your book. Oh, sure. The book is available on Amazon, of course. Um, you just go to Amazon. And if you type in Echoes in Eternity, it'll, it'll pop up even before you're done typing it. So it's, it's very easy to acquire through Amazon. It's also on barnesandnoble.com, um, walmart.com, and, and a few other places. And then I have a website called, it's, the address is echoesbook.com. And so those are the places you can find it. The, Echoes, the difference being Amazon, hey, if you that's awesome. I would encourage anybody to use Amazon. You don't have to pay for shipping. If you did choose my website, equosbook.com, you have to pay for shipping, but I'll sign it and, uh, okay. and make any inscription. And I'm sure so they can uh, contact you there as well. That's echosbook.com. Jim, uh, number one, thanks for your service. Number two, thanks so much for being guests on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Very much appreciated. Brother, I appreciate you, man. I got a new friend in law enforcement, and uh, and uh, I'm glad to be in the brotherhood with you, man. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.